0: Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. We've got two amazing students with me again today, and let's do some introductions. Uh, Joshua and Angela, this is a podcast that I requested you to do. Normally, we've had students um, pick a topic that meets the intersection between their interests and psychiatry. I took that away from you a little bit this, uh, this podcast. I think we'll open it up so that you could in the future if you want, but we'll see how this turns out. Let's do some introductions, though. Angela, tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Well, um, I'm an OMS R 3 RVU uh, in southern Utah. Um, I grew up in California, though, spent most of my life there. Um, also an interesting thing is I grew up riding horses, so I spent most of my youth uh, competing in hunters and jumpers. So.
0: Hunters and jumpers, really. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. Any thoughts about what you're going into yet?
1: Uh, Yeah, I've actually um, had quite a bit of interest in emergency medicine Uh, for a while now. I spent some time working in the emergency department as a EMT, um, although I just finished my surgical rotation and that kind of grabbed my interest as well, so. Pretty cool stuff as well. Yeah.
0: Boy, I wish everybody could see the smile. I've thought about making these video rather than podcasts to have both options um, if people could see your smile, they would, uh, they would know that surgery might replace emergency medicine.
1: Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's, uh, it's starting to, to sneak ahead. So
0: very cool.
2: Uh, Joshua, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi. Yeah. My name is Joshua. I, uh, I'm also a third year medical student at RVU and, uh, just trying to survive my three-year-old and my 10 uh, or 11 month old, uh, baby at home. They're, uh, make me wake up early and go to bed late so I'm a sleep-deprived medical student is what I would say. Babies, babies names? Uh, my oldest is Mason and my youngest is Wesley. So we've had uh, other people do shout outs to people in the past so oh, yeah. Uh, shout out to a significant other? Yeah my wife Elizabeth and my two kids uh, they they are uh, they're what pushed me through medical school. I couldn't, uh, I wouldn't be here without them. Now, Angela, do you have a shout out that would be appropriate too?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I could do the classic shout out to my mom and my dad. <laughs> and their <laughs> names? Uh, uh, Helen and Paul McFarland. They've uh, been very supportive these last, especially these last two years, but pretty much all my life, they've encouraged me to, to achieve my goals. So very lucky to have them.
0: So
2: uh, Joshua, I'm going to go back to you. Is there a direction you're headed in medicine at the moment? Yeah, I uh, I am very interested in psychiatry, and unless there is divine intervention, that's where I'm going to be putting my residency application. <laughs> so, I'm as happy as a lark here. Every day has been uh, better than the better than the last. So, so tough question here. Have you had your surgery rotation yet? <laughs> we we actually Angela and I both did our surgery rotation together, and then they kept us together. Um, probably against the wishes of Angela, but they kept (laughs) us together here for the uh, psychiatry. Angela seems like a good sport. So let me introduce this topic a little bit. Again,
0: normally I have the students tell me how they pick this topic, but I picked this topic, uh, the dopamine hypothesis, because it's, as I teach about schizophrenia, there is this, uh, these issues that come up in the psychopathology of, of schizophrenia. Dopamine is talked about quite a bit. There's a quote, dopamine hypothesis, end quote. And I felt like it was something I needed to understand better and maybe have a better ability to teach the students. So I I wanted to develop this topic, and you two were very helpful in in doing that. I appreciate that. During this discussion, I'm hoping that we will talk a little bit about radioactive Haldol, antipsychotic potency, 65% uh, dopamine receptors a little bit, Old is new, I think, yeah. and uh, dopamine is too much, dopamine is too little, dopamine is just right kinds of things. Should we get started? Yeah. Absolutely. All right, so I'm going to talk about the first, second, and what are sometimes called third generation antipsychotics, antipsychotic medications, very briefly. And then I think the goal is to have a an equally brief discussion about the things that we need to know to prepare for the shelf exam right tricks, uh, ideas to keep in your mind. So just very very briefly, the the first generation antipsychotic medications were developed in the 1950s. Uh, they were kind of the product of trying to find better treatments for surgery initially and maybe for uh, schizophrenia if you're for, if uh, Janssen did some of that um, they were generally considered to be, of more potent in a lot of ways than the medications now and I'm not sure that potency is a good description as much as tendency to cause things like Thorazine Shuffle or tardive dyskinesia, dystonias and so forth. So um, quite often students are asked to know the difference between high potency and low potency first-generation antipsychotic medications and usually the medications you would need to be aware of mostly are haloperidol and Thorazine, although I think we're going to mention a few further on. Second generation antipsychotic medications emerged much later. Um, they include things like Risperdal, Olanzapine, Quetiapine, and generally we think of uh, maybe a very big difference between those being that the motor effects of the first generation antipsychotic medications, tardive dyskinesia, akathisia, and so forth, um, were replaced by metabolic side effects. Now, these aren't 100% true, so you do need to know the differences in the medications, but the metabolic side effects being weight gain, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, or maybe more often, hypertriglyceridemia. the third generation antipsychotic medications don't seem to have shown up in the testing as much now not everybody would consider them third generation but they are fundamentally different than the first and second generation antipsychotics medications the first generation being considered largely dopamine 2 antagonists yes period we know that's not entirely true but that's kind of how they are viewed the second generation medications being dopamine two receptor antagonists, and also probably acting at the 5-HT2A-2C receptor and the 5-HT1A receptor. Mm -hmm. Although it seems like there's still some uh, variation around those two receptors, and whether it's 1-A agonist or 1-A antagonism, I, I think I've still not figured that out very well. I'm not sure that's important for the shelf, though. The more important part is that the third generation antipsychotic medication Uh, group seems to be partial antagonists. That seems to set them apart from the dopamine 2 full antagonists, the dopamine 2 and 5-HT2 acting molecules, and now we have a third generation of partial antagonists. Uh, Those include things like aripiprazole, um, probably you need to know about akathisia with aripiprazole, although the students say that it's not really showing up on their exams very much. Maybe uh, brexpiprazole is simply a lot like aripiprazole. Um, it was made by the same company, but it, it doesn't seem to have the same kind of side effects. So just like our uh, uh, first 20 or so antipsychotic medications that were developed are all somewhat different, brexpiprazole and aripiprazole, even though developed by the same company and also partial antagonists, are really not the same molecule. Cariprazine. Eventually, I think the question that will show up on this uh, medication is that it has a monster half-life. So I think we looked at the uh, half-life for both it, the decariprazine and the d cariprazine metabolites. Each of those have some crazy half-life of between like 24 hours and 30 days or something like yeah, that. Yeah. it was crazy. It's crazy, and and yet at the end of the day, the half-life that's listed in the uh, PI is about a month. So you don't see side effects. I think the, the package insert says something along the lines of late appearing side effects with this medication. So that's yeah. eventually going to be what's shown up on the, uh, on the uh, shelf exam. Mm-hmm. Now, having just very briefly gone over those medications, again, very briefly with the idea that the way they bind at the D2 receptor and maybe how they bind at other receptors is what differentiates these molecules. Uh, I, I mentioned that they're all very different. How do you prepare for the shelf exam and what are the kinds of questions that you need to be ready for on that exam? Uh, let's see, Angela, how about if we have you start with what you want to contribute and then Joshua, whatever you would like to contribute and then I might throw in a few more things after that. of course.
1: Yeah, I think um, psychopharmacology is something that a lot of students really struggle with. Um, it's definitely something that I've struggled with studying for and trying to keep all the medications straight since they each have unique side effects and unique mechanism of action so i think what i've noticed and josh let me know if if i'm wrong but a lot of our questions tend to stem from the side effects of the individual medications um not necessarily their mechanism of actions which are important to know because that does tend to help you decipher a lot of the side effects sometimes um but usually the questions go after the the side effects of the specific medications. Um, I know I've been getting a lot of questions on some first generation antipsychotics with their, uh, for example, haloperidol causes uh, prolonged QT and uh, which can lead to uh, torsades to points, and you get an EKG with torsades, and you have to stepwise figure out what they're what they're trying to ask and and where they're going with that question. Um, and then I think also knowing um, which drugs are FDA-approved for which treatments um, is helpful too, because like we've seen with some questions, they'll have a, a patient with bipolar disorder and part of that treatment is not just um, you know our first line of lithium, but if they have some sort of agitation or psychosis with that, um, you want to make sure you add an antipsychotic uh, to that plan. Um, is there anything else you want to add, Josh?
2: Yeah, so I think that when you're approaching uh, any pharmacology question, especially psychopharmacology, uh, I break it down into three different aspects of the method of action, which Dr. Roundy was able to go through um, brilliantly. The unique characteristics. Well, let's not get carried away. Uh-huh. <laughs> Being able to summarize it is uh, is sometimes very difficult for pharmacology. And then Angela was able to talk about the unique characteristics briefly about A good chunk of our questions come from knowing unique uh, interactions, kind of like uh, cataracts and bagels, quetiapine, uh, fluvenazine uh, being associated with thermal dysregulation. I I remember a question having a fun story of uh, a boy being brought in by his father uh, and he was hypothermic because he had left the windows open because he had been hot the day before and, and Um, Having a history of psychosis and being on fluvenazine, you needed to understand that and make that connection that um, the whole situation was probably based off of side effects from his medication. Uh, And then also knowing the FDA approvals, when when you look at questions on shelf and board exams, the classic way to look at them are first degree questions versus second degree questions. A lot of your first degree questions are gonna be those FDA approvals, uh, with the question stem being, what is the most appropriate uh, treatment for this uh, disorder that uh, this patient is presenting with? And then your second degree ones are a patient presenting with these side effects more often than not and being able to understand and make those two or three different connections to a specific medication. Mm -hmm. So high yield,
0: Mm -hmm. Flufenazine, thermal dysregulation, flufenazine is a first-gen antipsychotic. Mm -hmm. Cataracts and beagles were associated with quetiapine, even though I don't know that that ever has been found in humans yet. Uh, If you have somebody with Parkinson's, actually I'm going to skip that one for now. Yeah. thyridazine with retinitis pigmentosa, mm-hmm. so those are a couple that you'll sometimes see showing up. Now, other times, and, and I want to point this out. So we talked about side effects, but but sometimes it's not side of oh prolactin for uh, risperdal as well. Yeah, right? that's a big one. Um, sometimes it's the uniquely the unique absence of side effects that makes something helpful in a situation too. Yes. So if you have somebody that's very sensitive to medications and having akathisia. Mm-hmm for Parkinsonism, you might think about Clozapine and Quetiapine, particularly in, mm-hmm. in Parkinsonism, right? Yeah. Um, sometimes you have to be able to figure out the oblique clues, I think you're talking about second and third order questions, right? So if somebody comes in with a fever that's being treated for uh, schizophrenia, you might want to be thinking about Clozapine and agranulocytosis, yeah. so knowing those boxed warnings that, that
2: the medications are most uh, well known for. And also, I think the one that I've seen come up on UWorld and AMBOSS and a couple of other resources that I've used is presenting a patient that has been through a couple of different medications and understanding that clozapine, although it does have that black box warning of agranulocytosis, is an effective treatment for refractory uh, refractory psychosis.
0: Right, and that that also gets back to some of the package labeling, right? Yeah. I just want to point out, I think I said this incorrectly a moment ago, we talk about black box warnings, but I think that's oh. been changed by the FDA to boxed warnings. Boxed mm-hmm. warnings. And remember that um, agranulocytosis is only one of the boxed warnings for clozapine, mm-hmm. and uh, I think we've talked about it in the past. All right, so let's talk about the nuts and bolts of the dopamine hypothesis. I want to go back to the 1950s. I think we've talked about this before in a different podcast. We talked about Luby doing some experiments or at least reviewing some experiments. They put people in uh, sensory isolation situations. They gave people amphetamines. Uh, They gave people uh, PCP and they tried to observe what happened to have a better understanding of schizophrenia. And then along came uh, Thorazine, I think we talked about, uh, who was elaborate, uh, who uh, maybe was looking for a medication that would help people come out of surgery better. Uh, There was a French company that was developing this. And, And suddenly we have the world change with Thorazine, a medication that seems to help patients who are acutely psychotic and perhaps helps keep people from returning to psychosis. And suddenly the world changes. And we have um, a question that arises. The Question is, if we know that Thorazine helps treat schizophrenia, then can we look and see what Thorazine does so that we understand what causes schizophrenia, right? I think this is the big question that happens at the time. Now we're gonna talk about maybe how this question has changed over time, but I think that's the starting question, right? Mm -hmm. So which of you is gonna walk us through how things were? Like, there's some stuff that's emerging at the time. There's more to the story. I gave just a shell of some of the things we've talked about before. And and, uh, I see, Angela, that you're being pointed at. So, jump in there. That
1: is me. Um, So, what I found uh, interesting when kind of looking back and looking at research with this initial um, uh, iteration of the dopamine hypothesis is that there were a lot of False steps in trying to figure out um, how these drugs were working and and what their effect was on the brain. So um, a lot of researchers and scientists knew that amphetamines and LSD would cause um, psychosis symptoms similar to what we would see in schizophrenia. So they utilized this to try to determine which. Drugs were acting in the brain, and, and where, and potentially which receptors that that they were um, acting on. Um, so, initially, um, from what I was uh, reading, was the relationship between dopamine and psychosis uh, was first noted, um, uh, or grew out of an under, uh, understanding um, regarding Parkinson's disease. So, researchers started looking at. Um, the extrapyramidal symptoms that were seen with patients treated with um the antipsychotics like thorazine um and they were noticing the similarities between those symptoms and parkinson's um however when they would try to treat these patients with um l-dopa uh, which is what they were using for parkinson's at the time um, they weren't seeing that those symptoms resolved so they were looking at potentially the receptor is that is where um, the uh, antipsychotics were working and not necessarily the production of dopamine.
0: Yeah, so I, I thought it was really interesting that there were a couple of things you mentioned in here that were necessary mm-hmm. for a, a growing understanding of the role of dopamine in psychosis. And one of those was the research that had been done in Parkinson's disease, right? right. Or Parkinson's disease. I think they've changed that a little bit. Um, and, and how there was this tension between L-DOPA and the antipsychotic medications, increase L-DOPA, you reduce EPS, you increase psychosis, mm-hmm. antipsychotic medications are the flip side of right. that, right? right? I thought that was very interesting. Now, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Rossom, Dr. Rossum.
1: Yeah, so um, Dr. Rossum is a, uh, or was a Dutch pharmacologist, um, and he was, depending on which articles you read and, yeah. and things like that, which we discovered was uh, potentially one of the first uh, people to kind of f- create a formal proposal for a dopamine hypothesis. Um, and he based this hypothesis off of experiments um, in which stimulants such as amphetamines uh, were found to be more like dopamine than uh, norepinephrine. Um, And the amphetamine-induced behavior um, was not blocked by essentially acting um, adrenergic antagonists or um, reserpine, um, but was blocked by the non-reserpine neuroleptics like caliperidol or chlorpromazine. (laughs) Um, So he was um, able to conclude that it was not the adrenergic receptors, but something else that was responsible for for those effects that they were seeing um, with the amphetamines.
0: And I think he kind of just threw this out there, right? This Mm -hmm. wasn't, he's saying, hey, I don't think it's noradrenergic. I think it's dopamine. Right.
1: Okay. Um, So then he furthered his experiments um, by using uh, cocaine. um, uh, The motor effects of cocaine were reversed by L-DOPA in animal experiments that were also given reserpine, which um, reserpine essentially... Uh, what he was trying to do with that is eliminate uh, serotonin as an option for uh, the neurotransmitter and the receptor. So
0: All the monomines, mono I think, mm-hmm, right? So all right. the stores of monoamines would be gone at that point. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, he then concluded at the end of those, those experiments that essentially dopamine was presumed to be the only thing present at that time, which he then concluded was the main factor in the psychosis and, um, and potentially forced... Uh, the reason for schizophrenia.
0: One of the key authors in the development of the theory, or one of the key researchers, I would say, is probably uh, Siemens. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we read an article by him and who we presume is his daughter, Mary Siemens, uh, both uh, researchers and I believe physicians in Toronto. Um, Siemens said, hey, there were five things that kind of solidified this for us. Now, the Siemens is the guy that finally identifies the dopamine two receptor, right. right? And he said there were five things that kind of pushed us that direction to to look for this dopamine um, this dopamine receptor. The first was the side effects of antipsychotic medications. And part of those are the um, L-DOPA story that we talked about. Right. One other one is that uh, dopamine antagonists seem to be antiemetics, emetics mm-hmm. um, And I, I'm not sure I understood that story in the article, but that seemed to be something that was known. Yeah. Prolactin, the role mm-hmm. of prolactin. Um, that was the first thing they noticed. The second was the effect of dopamimetics. You talked about that right. to some extent. Uh, although there is, there is one challenge with this, and I think that's how, um, in part, it was answered by awesome is that these dopamimetics have some monoamine activity outside of dopamine. And I think we've talked about that in a previous podcast as well. The third uh, item that they thought sent them this direction was that neuroleptic medication, so that's another name for antipsychotic medications, Mm -hmm. accelerated the catecholamine turnover. The fourth thing was that antipsychotic medication potency seemed to relate to efficacy. Now that was something that uh, as they, I, I think that came in more after they finally identified the dopamine 2 receptor, mm-hmm. and I'll talk about that a little bit more. And then elevated density of dopamine receptors in schizophrenia was found, right? So mm-hmm. postmortem evaluation of the brains. Now, some of these were happening before the DR2, is uh, the dopamine receptor 2 was identified, some after. Now, I think it's also important to point out, and I don't know if somebody else wants to do this, but I thought it was important to point out that uh, Rossum really had two hypotheses, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's important to talk about that. So one of you want to start this conversation?
2: Yeah, I I, uh, I really was fascinated by this approach because I think, now I might be shooting myself in the foot here, but I think this might be what you were hinting at with the old is new kind uh, of approach. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, so his two hypotheses that were separate at the time were antipsychotic medications have their effect through dopamine receptor blockade as one. And then as two dopamine blockade might be part of the etiology of schizophrenia. And I think that why that's interesting, and this is a little bit of a spoiler warning because we're on version one of the dopamine hypothesis now, and today we're sitting on version three, that back in version one, we had these two things separated that, uh, uh, we have a separation of the dopamine hypothesis. Uh, affecting psychosis and that the dopamine blockade might as a keyword word be part of schizophrenia and we're gonna see a little bit of uh, how, how that the, evolves over yeah time. how that, that evolves yeah
0: I think that's a good way of saying it I do think it's important uh, to point out that um, that the cause and the treatment need to remain delinked in our mind Yes. Right, And I think yeah. it's important that that was said by uh, Rossum. Um, I, I think ultimately the work by Siemens demonstrated at least a good link between medications and the D2 receptor. And, and he did this through a couple of very elegant experience, experiments, a number of those. Um, One of those was the use of radio-labeled Haldol, so he sent uh, Haldol to, what was it, the New England Nuclear Institute or something like that, and got uh, radioactive Haldol. And and this was only after they had isolated the D2 receptor, I mean at first they tried working on, uh, they tried working on... they, they spent 10 years doing this, right? And so one of the first uh, trials they looked at was whether it was an anesthetic effect. If you gave Haldol to somebody what happened to the cell membrane while well, it swells up, but you had to do this at very high levels, right? They had to, even before they could discover what thing to target and whether they were going down the right pathway or not, they had to figure out what the nanomolar concentrations of, of Haldol were was in somebody that was having effect from the medication. When they looked at the anesthetic effect, they realized that the nanomolar concentrations were too high, so they got rid of that as the proposed mechanism. They then looked at enzymes that they thought might be responsible for this. I think it was a dopamine hydroxylase enzyme that was postsynaptic. That didn't work out at uh, the nanomolar concentrations Mm -hmm. necessary for effect. Another one was that it was an ink... (laughs) <laughs> Another one was that it was an increase of antipsychotic medications. Um, that also didn't work out through nanomolar concentrations. Um, and so what he did is he finally, they finally isolated the detritus receptor They had, this is a possible uh, target site. They were able to bind labeled L-DOPA to this site. They were then able to, lab, um, uh, they were able to bind labeled hydrogen, uh, Labeled Hydrogen-3 labeled um, howled out to this site, and they Mm -hmm. were able to prove that it it was acting at this site. Mm -hmm. Then they were also able to show something interesting. They found a a substance that caused psychosis, I think, in the rat model. They might have used it on humans, I don't know about that, where they could give, I want to say it was like Bactrolin or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Um, I've written it somewhere, and I can't see it. So they would give this substance to uh, subjects and they could induce psychosis, and then they could show. I believe with radio-labeled Haldol, that they could reverse that uh, by bumping it off the off the receptor. So a lot of elegant um, studies that seem to show that the mechanism of action for reduction of psychosis came through binding at the D two receptor. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right to you guys? That that's sort
2: of the nuts and bolts of that study. Yes. So we now have the dopamine hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. It's born in version one of uh, seeing uh, the effects of medication and uh, exploring why the medication worked, which I think is very indicative of medicine of the time, of chasing the the method of action of these medications to better understand the pathology. Right.
0: All right, so that takes us to version two, right? Yeah.
2: There are some holes in this hypothesis. Yeah. When I was reading about version two in a couple of the articles, it seemed very much a stepping stone. Uh, We have version one, which is the foundation of we know something is going on here. And then version three, which we'll talk about in more detail. But version two could be looked at for seeing the first signs of complication uh, in dopamine in the brain. Um, there was a couple of uh, research uh, experiences that started to poke holes in version version one, and and started to address that it's not talking about everything that's going on. Um, so I'm going to back up just
0: a little yeah. bit and say let's call version one of the dopamine hypothesis too much dopamine. Yeah. yeah. And and that isn't really a good explanation because really all we know at this point is that our dopamine antagonists, and and again, in those studies, I wanna point out one other thing that uh, Ross, that Seaman did. Seaman categorized how potent each molecule was at that D2 receptor, so he built KIs for each of those molecules. And out of that comes our potency charts for low, mid, and high potency antipsychotic medications. And also out of that is the at least the underpinnings of this idea that you need to bind about 65 percent of the receptors uh, with dopamine antagonism to be able to get an antipsychotic effect. So um, the idea is from, from the evidence that we have that antipsychotic medications block D2 receptors. In a lot of ways, this gets um, uh, taught maybe to medical students or at least to residents maybe, I don't know, to to people as too much dopamine, right? Yeah. And that's just not what it showed. It just showed that binding that receptor seemed to slow down psychosis, right? Yeah. Um, So now version two. We're starting to look at that and we see some interesting stuff showing up in PET scans. What's showing up in the PET scans?
2: Yeah, so the PET scans were showing that uh, studies of D2 and three receptors showed little difference between patients with schizophrenia and those without, uh, and we're starting to see more links to receptors in different pathways in the brain, seeing that it's not just too much dopamine, there is too much dopamine in the striatum, but maybe there is a little bit of too little dopamine in the prefrontal cortex. So that's your first kind of step of complicating this uh, this pathway or understanding this pathway. And and I don't know that this second
0: uh, iteration mm-hmm. needs a lot more attention. I will just yeah. add one comment here, and that is that this the uh, semen article that we looked at originally that I mentioned. Said, hey, this is the dopamine hypothesis right now, and there have been 10 or so at the time of this review article in 87. They include uh, acetylcholine, asymmetry mm-hmm. in dopamine in the brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to come back and, and clarify that right now. Environmental causes, cholecystokinin, uh, genetics, immunology, methylation of proteins, peptides, ventricular enlargement, viruses, opiates and you know, ultimately dopamine, among many others that were listed, right? So all of these things were kind of, not, not fully pushed aside, but the idea by uh, that uh, I think Seaman had was, hey, we have this very clear picture of some role of dopamine in the yeah. system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have these uh, PET scans now that are showing some very um, unique characteristics in, dopamine dysregulation rather yeah. than hyperdopaminergic hyperdominer- hyper states, right? Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about, um, I think, uh,
2: these key takeaways. Who has that? Yeah, so the key takeaways related to version two, uh, related to positive and negative symptoms, this is where we can start seeing potential explanations for positive and negative systems of schizophrenia, is looking at... The dopamine pathway so projections from the nigrostradial to the basal ganglia giving us positive symptoms and all these are dysregulations like dr randy said dopamine oh pro- wait actually those are um i've got an error there that's
0: not positive symptoms right that's uh, unchanged in patients with schizophrenia yep. so that's yeah, the nigrostradial
2: to basal ganglia unchanged in schizophrenia sorry okay. I, I had a typo there and then uh, dopamine projections in the mesocortical areas from the vta to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the VTA to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. These are gonna be your mood, cognition, negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Dopamine projections to the mesolimbic areas. Again, positive symptoms, VTA to limbic regions and then tubio infundibular, which is uh, gonna be a lot of your prolactin uh, symptoms as well want to point out that
0: we actually typed this together, and I typed it wrong. So it's not that this, just to be clear, this isn't the students just reading what I've typed for them to read. This is, uh, this gets fairly technical, and and again, I just want to repeat what you said. Dopamine projections to mesocortical areas, which is uh, uh, to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex Mm -hmm. and the meso-, uh, I'm sorry, to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. These are thought to be associated with negative symptoms. These are hypodopaminergic areas on PET scans. That's different than the dopamine projections to the mesolimbic areas, which have been associated with positive symptoms. Now, that might change just a little bit as we talk about version 3, which I think we should go ahead and go to. Cool. Who's starting version 3?
1: Yeah, I can start version 3. So um, version 3 kind of takes into account what i found interesting was it kind of takes into account where we kind of dropped off some potential causes for schizophrenia and it picks those back up of looking at genetic causes environmental causes stress and trauma drug use um, in addition to um the the dopamine uh effects in different areas of the brain whether it's whether it's too much or too little Um, and it also takes into account uh, potentially not looking at the receptor for dopamine, but higher up in the pathway of um, the presynaptic striatal dopaminergic function and that there may be an increase in this dopamine release. Um, So um, that's what I found interesting. And then it also takes into account um, this concept of salience, which I think talked around, you might be able to (laughs) describe that better than I can. Um, How I take it as is salience is interpreting stimuli and and what is important and what isn't. Um, So when you take, uh, let's say, psychosis into account, a lot of those features are potentially the brain not knowing what inputs to deem important and which ones to kind of filter out and, and so, with that pathway being slightly erratic, um, you can, it leads to the psychosis and, and some features we see with schizophrenia. Um, anything you'd like to I, add? I actually really, really
0: <laughs> like that. So I'm just going to take this um, from a higher viewpoint now because I, I think you did great with that. Uh, first recognition of dopamine in schizophrenia is that blockade of dopamine 2 receptor seems to reduce symptoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Next iteration is that there is asymmetry in dopaminergic pathways with some pathways being hyperdopaminergic and some uh, pathways being hypodopaminergic. Yeah. Now what we're adding to that is some meaning to these pathways. Right. So initially we talked about cognitive and uh, mood and negative symptoms associated with those pathways to the prefrontal cortex and hallucinations based on those pathways coming... Uh, to the mesolimbic areas, positive mm, symptoms. Yeah. But now I think you're adding something to this story that's just a little bit different, which is, wait a minute, the uh, ventrotechmental area projections to these limbic areas might have some implications for how we weigh these these inputs that are coming in, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not as simple as, you know, this is hot and so you're hallucinating, right? This yeah. area has too much activity. And, and we're starting to get some refinement of the way we think about symptoms mm-hmm. and some refinement in the way we see this story that revolves around dopamine. Am I on the right track so far, would you say? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then let's keep going. I like how what you do with salience. Let's go to um, psychosis.
2: Yeah. Well, I like what you said about refinement because earlier in the podcast, we talked about this old is new and we talked about the first two hypotheses were very different and unfortunately, you know, we had a conversation about this before the podcast started of this conflation is the word of, for the longest time we're saying the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia. And when you were, if you're looking in the literature now, you're probably gonna see more modern articles saying the dopamine hypothesis of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, m- a More modern study that I was able to find looked at PET scans of patients with bipolar disorder that had psychosis and saw that there were similar dopamine dysregulation pathways that they see in patients with schizophrenia. So now we're looking at, have we discredited maybe other aspects of schizophrenia and focused too much on onto, uh, onto the dopamine hypothesis. When in fact, the dopamine hypothesis is more about psychosis and not just about schizophrenia so I want to ask a question about that because I, did, I
0: didn't I did read the Jauhar article mm-hmm. and this was referenced by a number of people who make the case or at least one article we read who makes the case that the dopamine hypothesis is up in the night right to use a proverb um, if I understand correctly Jauhar looked at affective psychosis so mm-hmm. people who had bipolar disorder who became psychotic mm-hmm. okay so so i'm going to take us back to who was it that worked with alzheimer that i mentioned in that lecture uh who talked about the difference between manic depressive mm-hmm. states and and uh, uh dementia praecox <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> suddenly the name is escaping me but that yeah. speaks to this issue right yeah which is even though we've divided out psychosis for many years between affective psychosis and schizophrenia, mm-hmm. dopamine may have a role in both versions of psychosis.
2: Exactly, yeah, okay. exactly. I think, uh, I think that's pretty much the, the, the good takeaway from that article is that I don't think the dopamine hypothesis can be restricted just to schizophrenia, but dopamine hypothesis to psychosis broadly. And,
0: and with the caveat that it's not the cause mm-hmm. of yes. uh,
2: psychosis, yeah. it's the role of dopamine in psychosis. Yeah. And that's why I loved when you said refining, right? Because that's what it seems that the history of this hypothesis has done is just gotten more and more specific as it's. It looked like it's become more complicated.
0: Now there were a number of articles or a number of things that, uh, this was Kapoor and Who that did the the kind of the summary article on the three mm. iterations of the dopamine hypothesis. I think Kapoor was the second author, I forget yeah. who the first author was. Um, but but they talked about these key four components to the hypothesis and they based it on the idea that developmental issues arise, yeah. genetic issues appear to play some role in this, um, that GABA and glutamate seems to have some involvement. We have a lot of things that we can use to cause psychosis, and it's not just a dopamine story alone in its entirety, right? Yeah. um, I I think that what they said was, and I'm gonna melt this down to four parts unless one of you wants to take it.
1: No, go for it. No, go, okay.
0: (laughs) It takes multiple hits to dopamine to cause dysregulation in a way that can lead to psychosis.
2: Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: The locus of dopamine dysregulation is moved by these authors from the uh, D2 receptor to presynaptic activity. Yes. Yes, Um, Dopamine dysregulation is hypothesized to alter the appraisal of stimuli in other words, you're not causing hallucinations, you're causing distortion of what is perceived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that, I think that's kind of the way they're talking about it. Now, there, there are a couple of things I do want to point out, and that is that there are still a lot of problems with uh, the, the dopamine hypothesis in many iterations. Right? It's, it's an incomplete hypothesis. For example, if you go to genome-wide association studies and you look at studies that have picked uh, the common variants of the 11 most uh, m- most important dopamine-related genes that we've identified, you don't really find anything that stands out right. You can't find a, a, a gene, you can find a few genes that confer schizophrenia, but in most people we don't have a genetic explanation for schizophrenia. Genome-wide association studies haven't pushed us towards dopamine for that answer. Right. Yeah. It has included other things such as uh, inflammation, maybe um, immune responses, and so forth. Right. So, okay. so there's a lot more to the picture.
2: Yeah. Um, so, why do we use antipsychotic medications? Oh, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Mary Siemens' article uh, from the University of Toronto states: dopamine D2 receptor blockade remains necessary in order to obtain antipsychotic response in most patients. So regardless of the holes that we have in the theory, it's still the best form of treatment that we have for those specific symptoms. But she does go to say individuals differ, however, and it remains possible, even probable that specific subgroups of patients showing psychotic symptoms may respond most robustly to pharmaceutical agents that mainly affect brain chemical transmitters other than dopamine so to answer your question it's what we use dopamine blockers because it's what we have now however we might be able to find some new targets or more routes of therapy in the future. I sincerely
0: hope so I think even uh, very optimistic articles say that dopamine um, blockade blockading molecules really are not as effective as we would like, Mm -hmm. right? If we're very optimistic, what I think some, they said 60% have some response, right? Our experience at a state hospital says there are so many people that have a very suboptimal response, right? There's also some concerns in the literature about long-term effects of these medications on people, both with movement disorders, um, uh, obesity-related disorders and so forth, right? These are not benign molecules. Yeah. And, and so, even though we have a final common pathway, which I think some authors allude to, mm-hmm. for treatment, it certainly isn't that. it's not that somebody has a gene for too much uh, dopamine. That's not the cause yeah. of schizophrenia. Right,
1: right.
0: What have we not talked about that you guys want to add to the discussion? What have I skipped by? Knowing that you have a lecture with Dr. Rainer starting five minutes ago. <laughs> By the way, I texted him and let him know you're running a little bit late.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I think uh, just a comment um, when I was, you know, reading these articles and learning, it, it kind of helps me understand as to why we see such a varied response in treatment of schizophrenia. With you can give two different patients the same medication and they will have drastically different responses sometimes. So. All that shows me is that there's dopamine has some something to do with the psych, psychosis part of schizophrenia, but it's not the whole picture. It's just, you know, a small piece of the puzzle. For some people, it might be the whole puzzle and the medications work and and you get the effects that you want. But for others, there's other factors that we haven't addressed or, or we're starting to address with this uh, version three of the dopamine hypothesis and trying to figure out that final common pathway to treat uh, schizophrenia.
0: I like that. That almost sounds like a take-home
2: yeah, comment. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I can't add anything uh, more to what Angela said. I think that it's it was fascinating to read about the process of how this was discovered and it's hopeful that uh, it's not a complete process, that we have more to discover and more to look into this and uh, that we have some patience that aren't responding right now to dopamine uh, specific therapies that may in the coming years be able to have another option i hope so um i, I have a couple of take-homes and i'll give you guys another chance for
0: that um maybe before i do that though we talked about diabetes right and so, so i was um i read an article by a group of people who from my perspective, they kind of cherry-picked articles and said the dopamine hypothesis is totally wrong. Where I think most people that are working on the dopamine hypothesis say, hey, we're, we're working on something and it's getting closer, right? And, and I, I read at least one article that was like, dopamine hypothesis is totally wrong, so you shouldn't use antipsychotic medications because they cause brain damage. And, and I will save that discussion for another time. There are some articles out there that suggest hmm. that uh, antipsychotic medications are not as benign as we would like. Yeah. Um, and there are probably as many articles that say psychosis is not as benign as we would like, right? And so that's a, a different discussion. And, and so I got a little bit defensive about that. But then I, I started thinking about diabetes, right? When I think, I, my understanding of diabetes when I was in medical school was, it is an insulin disease. Yeah. I, I, I think the equivalent is schizophrenia is a diabetes. Is a, I'm sorry, is a dopamine disease, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not. It's just not the whole story. It's just a lot more complicated than that, right? Yeah. Maybe you can treat a lot of um, diabetes with exogenous insulin. Mm-hmm. To, or insulin,
2: you know, mm-hmm. modification,
0: uh, or. I mean, got some yeah. weight loss, right? Something that changes the way insulin is bound to the receptor, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if we think about schizophrenia as, as simple as insulin, we're missing the picture. I think uh, the, in, the insulin story is, is now being modified by uh, things like Genuvia mm-hmm. and uh, molecules along those lines where they're able to treat at least type 2 diabetes very differently, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it looks at things beyond uh, insulin receptors Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I think it's the same thing. And to me, I, I'm hopeful that our ability to poke holes in the dopamine hypothesis opens up something for us to treat patients better. I think you alluded to that yeah. as well, Joshua. So I, I like that very much. So, so one of my takeaways for this discussion is, thank goodness for people that are um, inquisitively poking holes in the theory and hoping to make a better version of what we understand about schizophrenia. Absolutely. My second take-home is that I still think about schizophrenia in terms of a dopamine illness. Too much dopamine. After this discussion, I think about it, I hope, in a better way. Mm -hmm. I think of it as a presynaptic illness in many ways, and I also think that maybe the dopamine three hypothesis doesn't give enough attention to postsynaptic receptors. There's a lot of discussion about the meaning of postsynaptic receptors. That I don't I don't see in the dopamine hypothesis as being well explained, at least mm-hmm. by dopamine three hypothesis from from Kapoor, right? So I'm I'm hopeful to see that maybe we have a different understanding. I'll add one other piece, and that is that in, in addition to thinking about the dopamine hypothesis a little bit differently in terms of receptors and presynaptic conditions, it's also not so clearly a genetic illness of dopamine machinery yeah it looks like some of the best data coming out of the genome wide association studies is this evidence for copy number variant and microdeletions and microduplications okay. so so the idea is it looks like the genes are correct but the number of genes being placed out there is not correct. So I think the proteome will hopefully give us more answers to that. And it looks like maybe that's a pathway that's being explored. Yeah. Those are my my take homes. Anything you two would like to add after that?
1: No, I I think that sums it up pretty well. I, th- I
2: think you guys actually had most of those points I think- before. <laughs> no, I think it's just very humbling to to be able to stand on the shoulders of all these researchers that have done such great work and to not fully discredit what they've done, but to understand that this is a growing understanding and uh, to not dismiss it outright uh, in the same way that we can't dismiss our uh, understanding of diabetes in in relation to insulin, but to use it to move forward. I was incredibly
0: impressed with uh, Dr. Seaman's research. I was was so just caught up in the description and, and the technical, like I had to reread paragraphs of that article over and over and over to, to have a sense of it. Um, stand on the shoulders of giants is a great way of saying that. Right. like that. You were going to say something, and I think you stopped, and then we cut you off. Oh,
1: no. I don't think so. Okay. Well, <laughs> um,
0: if you've listened to a podcast the whole way through, you know that you sign off by saying, team out, right? I, I say, okay, team out, and then you guys respond, team out. So if that's it today, team out. Team out. Team out. Thanks, guys.